Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are beginning this 27th reading with Book 3, Chapter 8, Section 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Book 3, Chapter 8 of Bearing the Cross, One Branch of Self-Denial. There are eleven sections. Section 1. The pious mind must ascend still higher, namely, whither Christ calls his disciples when he says that every one of them must, quote, take up his cross, unquote. Matthew 16, verse 24. Those whom the Lord has chosen and honored with his intercourse must prepare for a hard, laborious, troubled life, a life full of many and varied kinds of evils. It being the will of our Heavenly Father to exercise his people in this way while putting them to the proof. Having begun this course with Christ the firstborn, he continues it towards all his children. For though that son was dear to him above others, the son in whom he was, quote, well pleased, unquote, yet we see that far from being treated gently and indulgently, we may say that not only was he subjected to a perpetual cross while he dwelt on earth, but his whole life was nothing else than a kind of perpetual cross. The apostle assigns the reason, quote, Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, unquote. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Why then should we exempt ourselves from that condition to which Christ our head behoved to submit, especially since he submitted on our account, that he might in his own person exhibit a model of patience? Wherefore, the apostle declares that all the children of God are destined to be conformed to him. Hence it affords us great consolation in hard and difficult circumstances, which men deem evil and adverse, to think that we are holding fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, that as he passed to celestial glory through a labyrinth of many woes, so we too are conducted thither through various tribulations. For in another passage Paul himself thus speaks, quote, We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God, unquote. Acts 14, verse 22. And again, quote, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, unquote. Romans 8, verse 29. That citation is in error. It is Philippians 3, verse 10. How powerfully should it soften the bitterness of the cross to think that the more we are afflicted with adversity, the surer we are made of our fellowship with Christ, by communion with whom our sufferings are not only blessed to us, but tend greatly to the furtherance of our salvation. Section 2. We may add that the only thing which made it necessary for our Lord to undertake to bear the cross was to testify and prove his obedience to the Father whereas there are many reasons which make it necessary for us to live constantly under the cross. Feeble as we are by nature, and prone to ascribe all perfection to our flesh, unless we receive, as it were, ocular demonstration of our weakness, we readily estimate our virtue above its proper worth, and doubt not that whatever happens it will stand unimpaired and invincible against all difficulties. Hence, we indulge a stupid and empty confidence in the flesh, and then trusting to it, wax proud against the Lord himself, as if our own faculties were sufficient without his grace. This arrogance cannot be better repressed than when he proves to us by experience not only how great our weakness, but also our frailty is. Therefore he visits us with disgrace, our poverty, our bereavement, our disease, our other afflictions. Feeling altogether unable to support them, we forthwith, insofar as regards ourselves, give way, and thus humbled, learn to invoke his strength, which alone can enable us to bear up under a weight of affliction. 
nay, even the holiest of men, however well aware that they stand not in their own strength, but by the grace of God would feel too secure in their own fortitude and constancy, were they not brought to a more thorough knowledge of themselves by the trial of the cross. This feeling gained even upon David. Quote, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. Unquote. Psalm 30, verses 6 and 7. He confesses that in prosperity his feelings were dulled and blunted, so that neglecting the grace of God on which alone he ought to have depended, he lent to himself and promised himself perpetuity. If it so happened to this great prophet, who of us should not fear and study caution? Though in tranquility they flatter themselves with the idea of greater constancy and patience, yet humbled by adversity, they learn the deception. Believers, I say, warned by such proofs of their diseases, make progress in humility, and divesting themselves of a depraved confidence in the flesh, betake themselves to the grace of God, and when they have so betaken themselves, experience the presence of the divine power in which is ample protection. Section 3. This Paul teaches when he says that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience. God, having promised that he will be with believers in tribulation, they feel the truth of the promise. While supported by his hand, they endure patiently. This they could never do by their own strength. Patience, therefore, gives the saints an experimental proof that God in reality furnishes the aid which he has promised whenever there is need. Hence also their faith is confirmed, for it were very ungrateful not to expect that in future the truth of God will be, as they have already found it, firm and constant. We now see how many advantages are at once produced by the cross. Overturning the overweening opinion we form of our own virtue, and detecting the hypocrisy in which we delight, it removes our pernicious carnal confidence, teaching us, when thus humbled, to recline on God alone so that we neither are oppressed nor despond. Then victory is followed by hope, inasmuch as the Lord, by performing what he has promised, establishes his truth in regard to the future. Were these the only reasons, it is surely plain how necessary it is for us to bear the cross. It is of no little importance to be rid of your self-love and made fully conscious of your weakness so impressed with a sense of your weakness as to learn to distrust yourself, to distrust yourself so as to transfer your confidence to God, reclining on Him with such heartfelt confidence as to trust in His aid and continue invincible to the end, standing by His grace, so as to perceive that He is true to His promises and so assured of the certainty of His promises as to be strong in hope. Section 4 Another end which the Lord has in afflicting his people is to try their patience and train them to obedience, not that they can yield obedience to him except insofar as he enables them, but he is pleased thus to attest and display striking proofs of the graces which he has conferred upon his saints, lest they should remain within unseen and unemployed. Accordingly, by bringing forward openly the strength and constancy of endurance with which he has provided his servants, he is said to try their patience. Hence the expressions that God tempted Abraham, Genesis 21, verses 1 and 12, and made proof of his piety by not declining to sacrifice his only son. Hence, too, Peter tells us that our faith is proved by tribulation, just as gold is tried in a furnace of fire. But who will say it is not expedient that the most excellent gift of patience which the believer has received from his God should be applied to use by being made sure and manifest? Otherwise men would never value it according to its worth. But if God himself, to prevent the virtues which he has conferred upon believers from lurking in obscurity, nay, lying useless and perishing, does a right in supplying materials for calling them forth, there is the best reason for the afflictions of the saints, since without them their patience could not exist. I say that by the cross they are also trained to obedience, because they are thus taught to live not according to their own wish, but at the disposal of God. Indeed, did all things proceed as they wish, they would not know what it is to follow God. Seneca mentions that there was an old proverb when anyone was exhorted to endure adversity, quote, follow God, unquote thereby intimating that men truly submitted to the yoke of God only when they gave their back and hand to his rod. 
But if it is most right that we should in all things prove our obedience to our Heavenly Father, certainly we ought not to decline any method by which He trains us to obedience. Section 5. Still, however, we see not how necessary that obedience is unless we at the same time consider how prone our carnal nature is to shake off the yoke of God whenever it has been treated with some degree of gentleness and indulgence. It just happens to it, as with refractory horses, which have kept idle for a few days at hack and manger, become ungovernable and no longer recognize the rider, whose command before they implicitly obeyed. And we invariably become what God complains of in the people of Israel, waxing gross and fat. We kick against him who reared and nursed us. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. The kindness of God should allure us to ponder and love his goodness. But since such is our malignity that we are invariably corrupted by his indulgence, it is more than necessary for us to be restrained by discipline from breaking forth into such petulance. Thus lest we become emboldened by an overabundance of wealth, lest, elated with honor, we grow proud, lest, inflated with other advantages of the body, our mind, our fortune, we grow insolent, the Lord himself interferes as he sees to be expedient by means of the cross, subduing and curbing the arrogance of our flesh, and that in various ways at the advantage of each requires. For as we do not all equally labor under the same disease, so we do not all need the same difficult cure. Hence we see that all are not exercised with the same kind of cross. While the heavenly physician treats some more gently, in the case of others he employs harsher remedies, his purpose being to provide a cure for all. Still none is left free and untouched, because he knows that all, without a single exception, are diseased. Section 6 we may add that our most merciful Father requires not only to prevent our weakness, but often to correct our past faults, that he may keep us and do obedience. Therefore, whenever we are afflicted, we ought immediately to call to mind our past life. In this way, we will find that the faults which we have committed are deserving of such castigation. And yet the exhortation to patience is not to be founded chiefly on the acknowledgment of sin. For Scripture supplies a far better consideration when it says that in adversity, quote, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world, unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Therefore, in the very bitterness of tribulation, we ought to recognize the kindness and mercy of our Father, since even then he ceases not to further our salvation. For he afflicts, not that he may ruin or destroy, but rather that he may deliver us from the condemnation of the world. Let this thought lead us to what Scripture elsewhere teaches. Quote, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Unquote. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. When we perceive our father's rod, is it not our part to behave as obedient, docile sons, rather than rebelliously imitate desperate men who are hardened in wickedness? God dooms us to destruction, if he does not, by correction, call us back when we have fallen off from him. So that it is truly said, quote, if ye be without chastisement, unquote, quote, then ye are bastards and not sons, unquote. Hebrews 12, verse 8. We are most perverse, then, if we cannot bear him while he is manifesting his good will to us, and the care which he takes of our salvation. Scripture states the difference between believers and unbelievers to be that the latter, as the slaves of inveterate and deep-seated iniquity, only become worse and more obstinate under the lash, whereas the former, like freeborn sons, turn to repentance. Now, therefore, choose your class. But as I have already spoken of this subject, it is sufficient to have here briefly adverted to it. Section 7. There is singular consolation, moreover, when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For our thought should then be how high the honor which God bestows upon us in distinguishing us by the special badge of his soldiers. By suffering persecution for righteousness' sake, I mean not only striving for the defense of the gospel, but for the defense of righteousness in any way, whether, therefore, in maintaining the truth of God against the lies of Satan, or defending the good and innocent against the injuries of the bad, we are obliged to incur the offense and hatred of the world, so as to endanger life, fortune, or honor. Let us not grieve or decline so far to spend ourselves for God. Let us not think ourselves wretched in those things in which he with his own lips has pronounced us blessed. Matthew 5, verse 10. 
Poverty, indeed, considered in itself is misery. So are exile, contempt, imprisonment, ignominy. In fine, death itself is the last of all calamities. But when the favor of God breathes upon us, there is none of these things which may not turn out to our happiness. Let us then be contented with the testimony of Christ rather than with the false estimate of the flesh. And then, after the example of the apostles, we will rejoice in being, quote, counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, unquote. Acts 5, verse 41. For why? If, while conscious of our innocence, we are deprived of our substance by the wickedness of man, we are, no doubt, humanly speaking, reduced to poverty. But in truth, our riches in heaven are increased. If driven from our homes, we have a more welcome reception into the family of God. If vexed and despised, we are more firmly rooted in Christ. If stigmatized by disgrace and ignominy, we have a higher place in the kingdom of God. And if we are slain, entrance is thereby given us to eternal life. The Lord, having set such a price upon us, let us be ashamed to estimate ourselves at less than the shadowy and evanescent allurements of the present life. Section 8 Since by these and similar considerations Scripture abundantly solaces us for the ignominy or calamities which we endure in defense of righteousness, we are very ungrateful if we do not willingly and cheerfully receive them at the hand of the Lord, especially since this form of the cross is the most appropriate to believers, being that by which Christ desires to be glorified in us, as Peter also declares. 1 Peter 4, verses 11 and 14. But as to ingenuous natures, it is more bitter to suffer disgrace than a hundred deaths. Paul expressly reminds us that not only persecution but also disgrace awaits us, quote, because we trust in the living God, unquote, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. So in another passage he bids us, after his example, walk, quote, by evil report and good report, unquote, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 8. The cheerfulness required, however, does not imply a total insensibility to pain. The saints could show no patience under the cross if they were not both tortured with pain and grievously molested. Were there no hardship and poverty, no pain and disease, no sting and ignominy, no fear and death, where would be the fortitude and moderation in enduring them? But while every one of these, by its inherent bitterness, naturally vexes the mind, the believer in this displays his fortitude that, though fully sensible of the bitterness and laboring grievously, he still withstands and struggles boldly. In this displays his patience that, though sharply stung, he is, however, curbed by the fear of God from breaking forth into any excess. In this displays his alacrity that, though pressed with sorrow and sadness, he rests satisfied with spiritual consolation from God. Section 9. This conflict which believers maintain against the natural feeling of pain, while they study moderation and patience, Paul elegantly describes in these words, quote, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. You see that to bear the cross patiently is not to have your feelings altogether blunted, and to be absolutely insensible to pain, according to the absurd description which the Stoics of old gave of their hero as one who, divested of humanity, was affected in the same way by adversity and prosperity, grief and joy, or rather, like a stone, was not affected by anything. And what did they gain by that sublime wisdom? They exhibited a shadow of patience, which never did and never can exist among men. Nay, rather by aiming at a too exact and rigid patience, they banished it altogether from human life. Now also we have among Christians a new kind of Stoics, who hold it vicious not only to groan and weep, but even to be sad and anxious. These paradoxes are usually started by indolent men who, employing themselves more in speculation than in action, can do nothing else for us than beget such paradoxes. But we have nothing to do with that iron philosophy which our Lord and Master condemned, not only in word but also by his own example. For he both grieved and shed tears for his own and others' woes. Nor did he teach his disciples differently. Quote, Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Unquote. John 16, verse 20. And lest anyone should regard this as vicious, he expressly declares, quote, Blessed are they that mourn, unquote, Matthew 5, verse 4. And no wonder. If all tears are condemned, what shall we think of our Lord himself, whose, quote, sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, unquote. 
Luke 22, verse 44, and Matthew 26, verse 38. If every kind of fear is a mark of unbelief, what place shall we assign to the dread which, it is said, in no slight degree amazed him? If all sadness is condemned, how shall we justify him when he confesses, quote, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, unquote. Section 10. I wish to make these observations to keep pious minds from despair, lest, from feeling it impossible to divest themselves of the natural feeling of grief, they might altogether abandon the study of patience. This must necessarily be the result with those who convert patience into stupor, and a brave and firm man into a block. Scripture gives saints the praise of endurance when, though afflicted by the hardships they endure, they are not crushed. Though they feel bitterly, they are at the same time filled with spiritual joy. Though pressed with anxiety, breathe exhilarated by the consolation of God. Still there is a certain degree of repugnance in their hearts, because natural sense shuns and dreads what is adverse to it, while pious affection, even through these difficulties, tries to obey the divine will. This repugnance the Lord expressed when he thus addressed Peter, Quote, verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldst. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Unquote. John 21, verse 18. It is not probable indeed that when it became necessary to glorify God by death, he was driven to it unwilling and resisting. Had it been so, little praise would have been due to his martyrdom. But though he obeyed the divine ordination with the greatest alacrity of heart, yet as he had not divested himself of humanity, he was distracted by a double will. When he thought of the bloody death which he was to die, struck with horror, he would willingly have avoided it. On the other hand, when he considered that it was God who called him to it, his fear was vanquished and suppressed, and he met death cheerfully. It must therefore be our study, if we would be disciples of Christ, to imbue our minds with such reverence and obedience to God as may tame and subjugate all affections contrary to his appointment. In this way, whatever be the kind of cross to which we are subjected, we shall in the greatest straits firmly maintain our patience. Adversity will have its bitterness and sting us. When afflicted with disease, we shall groan and be disquieted and long for health. Pressed with poverty, we shall feel the stings of anxiety and sadness, feel the pain of ignominy, contempt, and injury, and pay the tears due to nature at the death of our friends. But our conclusion will always be, The Lord so willed it, therefore let us follow his will. Nay, amid the pungency of grief, among groans and tears, this thought will necessarily suggest itself and incline us cheerfully to endure the things for which we are so afflicted. Section 11. But since the chief reason for enduring the cross has been derived from a consideration of the divine will, we must in few words explain wherein lies the difference between philosophical and Christian patience. Indeed, very few of the philosophers advance so far as to perceive that the hand of God tries us by means of affliction, and that we ought in this manner to obey God. The only reason which they adduce is that so it must be. But is not this just to say that we must yield to God because it is vain to contend against him? For if we obey God only because it is necessary, provided we can escape, we shall cease to obey him. But what scripture calls us to consider in the will of God is very different, namely, first, justice and equity, and then a regard to our own salvation. Hence, Christian exhortations to patience are of this nature. Whether poverty, or exile, or imprisonment, or contumely, or disease, or bereavement, or any such evil affects us, we must think that none of them happens except by the will and providence of God. Moreover, that everything he does is in the most perfect order. What? Do not our numberless daily faults deserve to be chastised more severely and with a heavier rod than his mercy lays upon us? Is it not most right that our flesh should be subdued and be, as it were, accustomed to the yoke, so as not to rage and wanton as it lists? Are not the justice and the truth of God worthy of our suffering on their account? But if the equity of God is undoubtedly displayed in affliction, we cannot murmur or struggle against them without iniquity. We no longer hear the frigid cant, yield, because it is necessary, but a living and energetic precept, obey, because it is unlawful to resist. Bear patiently because impatience is rebellion against the justice of God. 
then as that only seems to us attractive which we perceive to be for our own safety and advantage here also our heavenly father consoles us by the assurance that in the very cross with which he afflicts us he provides for our salvation but if it is clear that tribulations are salutary to us why should we not receive them with calm and grateful minds in bearing them patiently we are not submitting to necessity but resting satisfied with our own good the effect of these thoughts is that to whatever extent our minds are contracted by the bitterness which we naturally feel under the cross to the same extent will they be expanded with spiritual joy hence arises thanksgiving which cannot exist unless joy be felt but if the praise of the lord and thanksgiving can emanate only from a cheerful and gladdened breast and there is nothing which ought to interrupt these feelings in us it is clear how necessary it is to temper the bitterness of the cross with spiritual joy book three chapter nine of meditating on the future life there are six sections section one whatever be the kind of tribulation with which we are afflicted we should always consider the end of it to be that we may be trained to despise the present and thereby stimulated to aspire to the future life for since god well knows how strongly we are inclined by nature to a slavish love of this world in order to prevent us from clinging too strongly to it he employs the fittest reason for calling us back and shaking off our lethargy every one of us indeed would be thought to aspire and aim at heavenly immortality during the course of his life for we would be ashamed in no respect to excel the lower animals whose condition would not be at all inferior to ours had we not a hope of immortality beyond the grave but when you attend to the plans wishes and actions of each you see nothing in them but the earth hence our stupidity our minds being so dazzled with the glare of wealth power and honors that they can see no farther the heart also engrossed with avarice ambition and lust is weighed down and cannot rise above them in short the whole soul ensnared by the allurements of the flesh seeks its happiness on the earth to meet this disease the lord makes his people sensible of the vanity of the present life by a constant proof of its miseries thus that they may not promise themselves deep and lasting peace in it he often allows them to be assailed by war tumult or rapine or to be disturbed by other injuries that they may not long with too much eagerness after fleeting and fading riches or rest in those which they already possess he reduces them to want or at least restricts them to a moderate allowance at one time by exile at another by sterility at another by fire or by other means that they may not indulge too complacently in the advantages of married life he either vexes them by the misconduct of their partners or humbles them by the wickedness of their children or afflicts them by bereavement but if in all these he is indulgent to them lest they should either swell with vainglory or be elated with confidence by diseases and dangers he sets palpably before them how unstable and evanescent are all the advantages competent to mortals we duly profit by the discipline of the cross when we learn that this life estimated in itself is restless troubled in numberless ways wretched and plainly in no respect happy that what are estimated its blessings are uncertain fleeting vain and vitiated by a great admixture of evil from this we conclude that all we have to seek or hope for here is contest that when we think of the crown we must raise our eyes to heaven for we must hold that our mind never rises seriously to desire and aspire after the future until it has learned to despise the present life section two for there is no medium between the two things the earth must either be worthless in our estimation or keep us enslaved by an intemperate love of it therefore if we have any regard to eternity we must carefully strive to disencumber ourselves of these fetters moreover since the present life has many enticements to allure us and great semblance of delight grace and sweetness to soothe us it is of great consequence to us to be now and then called off from its fascinations for what pray would happen if we here enjoyed an uninterrupted course of honor and felicity when even the constant stimulus of affliction cannot arouse us to a due sense of our misery that human life is like smoke or a shadow is not only known to the learned there is not a more trite proverb among the vulgar considering it a fact most useful to be known they have recommended it in many well-known expressions 
Still, there is no fact which we ponder less carefully or less frequently remember, for we form all our plans just as if we had fixed our immortality on the earth. If we see a funeral or walk among graves, as the image of death is then present to the eye, I admit we philosophize admirably on the vanity of life. We do not indeed always do so, for those things often have no effect upon us at all, but at the best our philosophy is momentary, it vanishes as soon as we turn our back, and leaves not the vestige of remembrance behind. In short, it passes away, just like the applause of a theater at some pleasant spectacle." forgetful not only of death, but also of mortality itself, as if no rumor of it had ever reached us, we indulge in supine security as expecting a terrestrial immortality. Meanwhile, if any one breaks in with the proverb that man is the creature of a day, we indeed acknowledge its truth, but so far from giving heed to it, the thought of perpetuity still keeps hold of our minds." Who then can deny that it is of the highest importance to us all, I say not, to be admonished by words, but convinced by all possible experience of the miserable condition of our earthly life, since, even when convinced, we scarcely cease to gaze upon it with vicious, stupid admiration, as if it contained within itself the sum of all that is good. But if God finds it necessary so to train us, it must be our duty to listen to him when he calls, and shakes us from our torpor that we may hasten to despise the world and aspire with our whole heart to the future life. Section 3. Still the contempt which believers should train themselves to feel for the present life must not be of a kind to beget hatred of it or ingratitude to God. This life, though abounding in all kinds of wretchedness, is justly classed among divine blessings which are not to be despised. Wherefore, if we do not recognize the kindness of God in it, we are chargeable with no little ingratitude towards Him. To believers especially it ought to be a proof of divine benevolence, since it is wholly destined to promote their salvation. Before openly exhibiting the inheritance of eternal glory, God is pleased to manifest himself to us as a father by minor proofs, viz., the blessings which he daily bestows upon us. Therefore, while this life serves to acquaint us with the goodness of God, shall we disdain it as if it did not contain one particle of good? We ought, therefore, to feel and be affected towards it in such a manner as to place it among those gifts of the divine benignity which are by no means to be despised. Were there no proofs in Scripture, they are most numerous and clear. Yet nature herself exhorts us to return thanks to God for having brought us forth into light, granted us the use of it, and bestowed upon us all the means necessary for its preservation. And there is a much higher reason when we reflect that here we are in a manner prepared for the glory of the heavenly kingdom. For the Lord hath ordained that those who are ultimately to be crowned in heaven must maintain a previous warfare on the earth, that they may not triumph before they have overcome the difficulties of war and obtained the victory. Another reason is that we here begin to experience in various ways a foretaste of the divine benignity, in order that our hope and desire may be whetted for its full manifestation. When once we have concluded that our earthly life is a gift of the divine mercy, of which, agreeably to our obligation, it behoves us to have a grateful remembrance, we shall then properly descend to consider its most wretched condition, and thus escape from that excessive fondness for it, to which, as I have said, we are naturally prone. Section 4. In proportion as this improper love diminishes, our desire of a better life should increase. I confess indeed that a most accurate opinion was formed by those who thought that the best thing was not to be born, the next best to die early. For being destitute of the light of God and of true religion, what could they see in it that was not of dire and evil omen? Nor was it unreasonable for those who felt sorrow and shed tears at the birth of their kindred to keep holiday at their deaths. But this they did without profit, because devoid of the true doctrine of faith, they saw not how that which in itself is neither happy nor desirable turns to the advantage of the righteous, and hence their opinion issued in despair. Let believers then, in forming an estimate of this mortal life, and perceiving that in itself it is nothing but misery, make it their aim to exert themselves with greater alacrity and less hindrance in aspiring to the future and eternal life. When we contrast the two, the former may not only be securely neglected, but in comparison of the latter be disdained and contemned. If heaven is our country, what can the earth be but a place of exile? If departure from the world is entrance into life, what is the world but a sepulchre, and what is residence in it but immersion and death? 
If to be freed from the body is to gain full possession of freedom, what is the body but a prison? If it is the very summit of happiness to enjoy the presence of God, is it not miserable to want it? But, quote, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, unquote, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Thus, when the earthly is compared with the heavenly life, it may undoubtedly be despised and trampled underfoot. We ought never indeed to regard it with hatred, except insofar as it keeps us subject to sin. And even this hatred ought not to be directed against life itself. At all events, we must stand so affected towards it in regard to weariness or hatred as, while longing for its termination, to be ready at the Lord's will to continue in it, keeping far from everything like murmuring and impatience. For it is as if the Lord had assigned us a post, which we must maintain till he recalls us. Paul indeed laments his condition, and being still bound with the fetters of the body, and sighs earnestly for redemption. Romans 7, verse 24. Nevertheless, he declared that in obedience to the command of God, he was prepared for both courses, because he acknowledges it as his duty to God to glorify his name, whether by life or by death, while it belongs to God to determine what is most conducive to his glory. Philippians 1, verses 20 through 24. Wherefore, if it becomes us to live and die to the Lord, let us leave the period of our life and death at his disposal. Still, let us ardently long for death and constantly meditate upon it. And in comparison with future immortality, let us despise life, and on account of the bondage of sin, long to renounce it whenever it shall so please the Lord. Section 5 But, most strange to say, many who boast of being Christians instead of thus longing for death are so afraid of it that they tremble at the very mention of it as a thing ominous and dreadful. We cannot wonder, indeed, that our natural feelings should be somewhat shocked at the mention of our dissolution. But it is altogether intolerable that the light of piety should not be so powerful in a Christian breast as with greater consolation to overcome and suppress that fear. For if we reflect that this our tabernacle, unstable, defective, corruptible, fading, pining, and putrid, is dissolved in order that it may forthwith be renewed in sure, perfect, incorruptible, in fine, in heavenly glory, will not faith compel us eagerly to desire what nature dreads? If we reflect that by death we are recalled from exile to inhabit our native country, a heavenly country, shall this give us no comfort? That everything longs for permanent existence. I admit this, and therefore contend that we ought to look to future immortality, where we may obtain that fixed condition which nowhere appears on the earth. For Paul admirably enjoins believers to hasten cheerfully to death, not because they, quote, would be unclothed, but clothed upon. Second Corinthians 5, verse 2. Shall the lower animals and inanimate creatures themselves, even wood and stone, as conscious of their presence vanity, long for the final resurrection, that they may with the sons of God be delivered from vanity? Romans 8, verse 19. And shall we, endued with the light of intellect, and more than intellect enlightened by the Spirit of God, when our essence is in question, rise no higher than the corruption of this earth? But it is not my purpose, nor is this the place to plead against this great perverseness. At the outset I declared that I had no wish to engage in a diffuse discussion of commonplaces. My advice to those whose minds are thus timid is to read the short treatise of Cyprian, De Mortalitate, unless it be more accordant with their deserts, to send them to the philosophers, that by inspecting what they say on the contempt of death, they may begin to blush. This, however, let us hold as fixed, that no man has made much progress in the school of Christ who does not look forward with joy to the day of death and final resurrection. Second Timothy 4, verse 18, and Titus 2, verse 13. For Paul distinguishes all believers by this mark, and the usual course of Scripture is to direct us thither whenever it would furnish us with an argument for substantial joy. Quote, Look up, unquote, says our Lord, quote, and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Unquote. Luke 21, verse 28. Is it reasonable, I ask, that what he intended to have a powerful effect in stirring us up to alacrity and exultation should produce nothing but sadness and consternation? If it is so, why do we still glory in him as our master? Therefore, let us come to a sounder mind, and how repugnant soever the blind and stupid longing of the flesh may be, let us doubt not to desire the advent of the Lord, not in which only, but with earnest sighs, as the most propitious of all events. 
He will come as a Redeemer to deliver us from an immense abyss of evil and misery, and lead us to the blessed inheritance of his life and glory. Section 6 Thus indeed it is, the whole body of the faithful, so long as they live on the earth, must be like sheep for the slaughter, in order that they may be conformed to Christ their head. Romans 8, verse 36 Most deplorable, therefore, would their situation be, did they not, by raising their mind to heaven, become superior to all that is in the world, and rise above the present aspect of affairs. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 On the other hand, when once they have raised their head above all earthly objects, though they see the wicked flourishing in wealth and honor, and enjoying profound peace, indulging in luxury and splendor, and reveling in all kinds of delights, though they should moreover be wickedly assailed by them, suffer insult from their pride, be robbed by their avarice, or assailed by any other passion, they will have no difficulty in bearing up under these evils. They will turn their eye to that day. Isaiah 25, verse 8, and Revelation 7, verse 17, on which the Lord will receive his faithful servants, wipe away all tears from their eyes, clothe them in a robe of glory and joy, feed them with the ineffable sweetness of his pleasures, exalt them to share with him in his greatness, and fine, admit them to a participation in his happiness. But the wicked who may have flourished on the earth, he will cast forth in extreme ignominy will change their delights into torments, their laughter and joy into wailing and gnashing of teeth, their peace into the gnawing of conscience, and punish their luxury with unquenchable fire. He will also place their necks under the feet of the godly, whose patience they abused. For, as Paul declares, quote, It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. Unquote. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7. This, indeed, is our only consolation. Deprived of it, we must either give way to despondency, or resort to our destruction to the vain solace of the world. The psalmist confesses, quote, My feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Unquote. Psalm 73, verses 3 and 4. And he found no resting place until he entered the sanctuary, and considered the latter end of the righteous and the wicked. To conclude in one word, the cross of Christ, then, only triumphs in the breasts of believers over the devil and the flesh, sin and sinners, when their eyes are directed to the power of his resurrection. Book 3, Chapter 10, How to Use the Present Life and the Comforts of It. There are six sections. Section 1. By such rudiments we are at the same time well instructed by Scripture in the proper use of earthly blessings, a subject which, in forming a scheme of life, is by no means to be neglected. For if we are to live, we must use the necessary supports of life, nor can we even shun those things which seem more subservient to delight than to necessity. We must therefore observe a mean that we may use them with a pure conscience, whether for necessity or for pleasure. This the Lord prescribes by his word, when he tells us that to his people the present life is a kind of pilgrimage by which they hasten to the heavenly kingdom. If we are only to pass through the earth, there can be no doubt that we are to use its blessings only in so far as they assist our progress, rather than retard it. Accordingly, Paul, not without cause, admonishes us to use this world without abusing it, and to buy possessions as if we were selling them. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 30 and 31. But as this is a slippery place, and there is great danger of falling on either side, let us fix our feet where we can stand safely. There have been some good and holy men who, when they saw intemperance and luxury perpetually carried to excess, if not strictly curbed and were desirous to correct so pernicious an evil, imagined that there was no other method than to allow man to use corporeal goods only insofar as they were necessaries, a counsel pious indeed, but unnecessarily austere. For it does the very dangerous thing of binding consciences in closer fetters than those in which they are bound by the word of God. Moreover, necessity, according to them, was abstinence from everything which could be wanted, so that they held it scarcely lawful to make any addition to bread and water. Others were still more austere, as is related of Cratites the Theban, who threw his riches into the sea, because he thought that unless he destroyed them they would destroy him. 
Many also in the present day, while they seek a pretext for carnal intemperance and the use of external things, and at the same time would pave the way for licentiousness, assume for granted, what I by no means concede, that this liberty is not to be restrained by any modification, but that it is to be left to every man's conscience to use them as far as he thinks lawful. I indeed confess that here consciences neither can nor ought to be bound by fixed and definite laws, but that Scripture, having laid down general rules for the legitimate use, we should keep within the limits which they prescribe. Section 2. Let this be our principle that we are not in the use of the gifts of providence when we refer them to the end for which their author made and destined them, since he created them for our good and not for our destruction. No man will keep the true path better than he who shall have this end carefully in view. Now then, if we consider for what end he created food, we shall find that he consulted not only for our necessity, but also for our enjoyment and delight. Thus, in clothing, the end was, in addition to necessity, comeliness and honor. And in herbs, fruits, and trees, besides their various uses, gracefulness of appearance and sweetness of smell. Were it not so, the prophet would not enumerate among the mercies of God, quote, wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil make his face to shine, unquote. Psalm 104, verse 15. The scriptures would not everywhere mention in commendation of this benignity that he had given such things to men. The natural qualities of things themselves demonstrate to what end and how far they may be lawfully enjoyed. Has the Lord adorned flowers with all the beauty which spontaneously presents itself to the eye, and the sweet odor which delights the sense of smell, and shall it be unlawful for us to enjoy that beauty and this odor? What? Has he not so distinguished colors as to make some more agreeable than others? Has he not given qualities to gold and silver, ivory and marble, thereby rendering them precious above other metals or stones? In short, has he not given many things a value without having any necessary use? Section 3 Have done, then, with that inhuman philosophy which, in allowing no use of the creatures but for necessity, not only maliciously deprives us of the lawful fruit of the divine beneficence, but cannot be realized without depriving man of all his senses, and reducing him to a block. But, on the other hand, let us with no less care guard against the lusts of the flesh, which, if not kept in order, break through all bounds, and are, as I have said, advocated by those who, under pretense of liberty, allow themselves every sort of license. First, one restraint is imposed when we hold that the object of creating all things was to teach us to know their author and feel grateful for his indulgence. Where is the gratitude if you so gorge or stupefy yourself with feasting and wine as to be unfit for offices of piety or the duties of your calling? Where the recognition of God, if the flesh, boiling forth in lust through excessive indulgence, infects the mind with its impurity, so as to lose the discernment of honor and rectitude? Where thankfulness to God for clothing, if on account of sumptuous raiment we both admire ourselves and disdain others? If from a love of show and splendor we pave the way for immodesty? Where our recognition of God, if the glare of these things captivates our minds? For many are so devoted to luxury in all their senses that their mind lies buried. Many are so delighted with marble, gold, and pictures that they become marble-hearted, are changed, as it were, into metal, and made like painted figures. The kitchen, with its savory smell, so engrosses them that they have no spiritual savor. The same thing may be seen in other matters. Wherefore it is plain that there is here great necessity for curbing licentious abuse and conforming to the rule of Paul, quote, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, unquote. Romans 13, verse 14. Where too much liberty is given to them, they break forth without measure or restraint. Section 4. There is no surer or quicker way of accomplishing this than by despising the present life and aspiring to celestial immortality. For hence two rules arise. First, quote, It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Unquote. Quote, and they that use this world as not abusing it. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 and 31. Secondly, we must learn to be no less placid and patient in enduring penury than moderate in enjoying abundance. 
He who makes it his rule to use this world as if he used it not, not only cuts off all gluttony in regard to meat and drink and all effeminacy, ambition, pride, excessive show, and austerity in regard to his table, his house, and his clothes, but removes every care and affection which might withdraw or hinder him from aspiring to the heavenly life and cultivating the interest of his soul. It was well said by Cato, Luxury causes great care and produces great carelessness as to virtue. And it is an old proverb, those who are much occupied with the care of the body usually give little care to the soul. Therefore, while the liberty of the Christian in external matters is not to be tied down to a strict rule, it is, however, subject to this law. He must indulge as little as possible. On the other hand, it must be his constant aim not only to curb luxury, but to cut off all show of superfluous abundance, and carefully beware of converting a help into a hindrance. Section 5. Another rule is that those in narrow and slender circumstances should learn to bear their wants patiently, that they may not become immoderately desirous of things, the moderate use of which implies no small progress in the school of Christ. For in addition to the many other vices which accompany a longing for earthly good, he who is impatient under poverty almost always betrays the contrary disease in abundance. By this I mean that he who is ashamed of a sordid garment will be vainglorious of a splendid one. He who not contented with a slender feels annoyed at the want of a more luxurious supper will intemperately abuse his luxury if he obtains it. He who has a difficulty and is dissatisfied in submitting to a private and humble condition will be unable to refrain from pride if he attain to honor. Let it be the aim of all who have any unfeigned desire for piety to learn, after the example of the apostle, quote, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, unquote. Philippians 4, verse 12. Scripture, moreover, has a third rule for modifying the use of earthly blessings. We have already adverted to it when considering the offices of charity, for it declares that they have all been given us by the kindness of God and appointed for our use under the condition of being regarded as trusts, of which we must one day give account. We must therefore administer them as if we constantly heard the words sounding in our ears, quote, Give an account of your stewardship, unquote. At the same time, let us remember by whom the account is to be taken, viz., by him who, while he so highly commends abstinence, sobriety, frugality, and moderation, abominates luxury, pride, ostentation, and vanity, who approves of no administration but that which is combined with charity, who with his own lips has already condemned all those pleasures which withdraw the heart from chastity and purity or darken the intellect. Section 6. The last thing to be observed is that the Lord enjoins every one of us in all the actions of life to have respect to our own calling. He knows the boiling restlessness of the human mind, the fickleness with which it is borne hither and thither, its eagerness to hold opposites at one time in its grasp, its ambition. Therefore, lest all things should be thrown into confusion by our folly and rashness, he has assigned distinct duties to each in the different modes of life. And that no one may presume to overstep his proper limits, he has distinguished the different modes of life by the name of callings. Every man's mode of life, therefore, is a kind of station assigned him by the Lord, that he may not be always driven about at random. So necessary is this distinction, that all our actions are thereby estimated in his sight, and often in a very different way from that in which human reason or philosophy would estimate them. There is no more illustrious deed, even among philosophers, than to free one's country from tyranny, and yet the private individual who stabs the tyrant is openly condemned by the voice of the heavenly judge. But I am unwilling to dwell on particular examples. It is enough to know that in everything the call of the Lord is the foundation and the beginning of right action. He who does not act with reference to it will never, in the discharge of duty, keep the right path. He will sometimes be able, perhaps, to give the semblance of something laudable, but whatever it may be in the sight of man, it will be rejected before the throne of God. And besides, there will be no harmony in the different parts of his life. Hence, the only who directs his life to this end will have it properly framed, because, free from the impulse of rashness, he will not attempt more than his calling justifies, knowing that it is unlawful to overleap the prescribed bounds. He who is obscure will not decline to cultivate a private life, that he may not desert the post at which God has placed him. Again, in all our cares, toils, annoyances, and other burdens, 
it will be no small alleviation to know that all these are under the superintendence of God. The magistrate will more willingly perform his office, and the father of a family confine himself to his proper sphere. Every one in his particular mode of life will, without repining, suffer its inconveniences, cares, uneasiness, and anxiety, persuaded that God has laid on the burden. This, too, will afford admirable consolation that in following your proper calling, no work will be so mean and sordid as not to have a splendor and value in the eye of God. Book 3, Chapter 11 Of Justification by Faith Both the Name and the Reality Defined There are 23 sections. Section 1 I trust I have now sufficiently shown how man's only resource for escaping from the curse of the law and recovering salvation lies in faith and also what the nature of faith is, what the benefits which it confers, and the fruits which it produces. The whole may be thus summed up. Christ given to us by the kindness of God is apprehended and possessed by faith, by means of which we obtain in particular a twofold benefit. First, being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. And secondly, being sanctified by his Spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. This second benefit, viz. regeneration, appears to have been already sufficiently discussed. On the other hand, the subject of justification was discussed more cursorily, because it seemed of more consequence first to explain that the faith by which alone, through the mercy of God, we obtain free justification, is not destitute of good works, and also to show the true nature of these good works on which this question partly turns. The doctrine of justification is now to be fully discussed, and discussed under the conviction that as it is the principal ground on which religion must be supported, so it requires greater care and attention. For unless you understand first of all that your position is before God, and what the judgment which he passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid, or on which piety towards God can be reared. The necessity of thoroughly understanding this subject will become more apparent as we proceed with it. Section 2. Lest we should stumble at the very threshold, this we should do were we to begin the discussion without knowing what the subject is, let us first explain the meaning of the expressions, to be justified in the sight of God, to be justified by faith or by works. A man is said to be justified in the sight of God when in the judgment of God he is deemed righteous and is accepted on account of his righteousness. For as iniquity is abominable to God, so neither can the sinner find grace in his sight, so far as he is and so long as he is regarded as a sinner. Hence, wherever sin is, there also are the wrath and vengeance of God. He, on the other hand, is justified who is regarded not as a sinner, but as righteous, and as such stands acquitted at the judgment seat of God where all sinners are condemned. As an innocent man, when charged before an impartial judge who decides according to his innocence, is said to be justified by the judge, so a man is said to be justified by God when, removed from the catalogue of sinners, he has God as the witness and asserter of his righteousness. In the same manner, a man will be said to be justified by works, if in his life there can be found a purity and holiness which merits an attestation of righteousness at the throne of God, or if by the perfection of his works he can answer and satisfy the divine justice. On the contrary, a man will be justified by faith when, excluded from the righteousness of works, he by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ, and clothed in it appears in the sight of God not as a sinner, but as righteous. Thus we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness of Christ. See sections 21 and 23. Section 3. In confirmation of this, there are many clear passages of Scripture. First, it cannot be denied that this is the proper and most usual signification of the term. But as it were too tedious to collect all the passages and compare them with each other, let it suffice to have called the reader's attention to the fact. He will easily convince himself of its truth. I will only mention a few passages in which the justification of which we speak is expressly handled. First, when Luke relates that all the people that heard Christ, quote, justified God, unquote, in Luke 7, verse 29, and when Christ declares that, quote, Wisdom is justified of all her children, unquote, in Luke 7, verse 35. 
Luke means not that they conferred righteousness, which always dwells in perfection with God, although the whole world should attempt to wrest it from him, nor does Christ mean that the doctrine of salvation is made just. This it is in its own nature. But both modes of expression are equivalent to attributing due praise to God and his doctrine. On the other hand, when Christ upbraids the Pharisees for justifying themselves, Luke 16, verse 15, he means not that they acquired righteousness by acting properly, but that they ambitiously courted a reputation for righteousness of which they were destitute. Those acquainted with Hebrew understand the meaning better. For in that language, the name of wicked is given not only to those who are conscious of wickedness, but to those who receive sentence of condemnation. Thus, when Bathsheba says, quote, I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders, unquote, she does not acknowledge a crime, but complains that she and her son will be exposed to the disgrace of being numbered among reprobates and criminals. 1 Kings 1, verse 21. It is indeed plain from the context that the term even in Latin must be thus understood, viz. relatively, and does not denote inequality. In regard to the use of the term with reference to the present subject, when Paul speaks of the scripture, quote, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, unquote, Galatians 3, verse 8, what other meaning can you give it than that God imputes righteousness by faith? Again, when he says, quote, that he, God, might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus, unquote, Romans 3, verse 26, what can the meaning be if not that God, in consideration of their faith, frees them from the condemnation which their wickedness deserves? This appears still more plainly at the conclusion when he exclaims, quote, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Unquote. Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. For it is just as if he had said, Who shall accuse those whom God has acquitted? Who shall condemn those for whom Christ pleads? To justify, therefore, is nothing else than to acquit from the charge of guilt, as if innocence were proved. Hence, when God justifies us through the intercession of Christ, he does not acquit us on a proof of our own innocence, but by an imputation of righteousness, so that, though not righteous in ourselves, we are deemed righteous in Christ. Thus it is said in Paul's discourse in the Acts, quote, Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses, unquote. Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. You see that at the remission of sins, justification is set down by way of explanation. You see plainly that it is used for acquittal. You see how it cannot be obtained by the works of the law. You see that it is entirely through the interposition of Christ. You see that it is obtained by faith. You see, in fine, that satisfaction intervenes, since it is said that we are justified from our sins by Christ. Thus, when the publican is said to have gone down to his house, quote, justified, unquote, Luke 18, verse 14, it cannot be held that he obtained this justification by any merit of works. All that is said is that after obtaining the pardon of sins, he was regarded in the sight of God as righteous. He was justified, therefore, not by any approval of works, but by gratuitous acquittal on the part of God. Hence, Ambrose elegantly terms confession of sins, quote, legal justification, unquote. Section 4. Without saying more about the term, we shall have no doubt as to the thing meant if we attend to the description which is given of it. For Paul certainly designates justification by the term acceptance, when he says to the Ephesians, quote, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. His meaning is the very same as where he elsewhere says, quote, being justified freely by his grace, unquote. Romans 3, verse 24. In the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, he first terms it the imputation of righteousness, and hesitates not to place it in forgiveness of sins. Quote, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, Unquote. etc. Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. There, indeed, he is not speaking of a part of justification, but of the whole. He declares, moreover, 
that a definition of it was given by David when he pronounced him blessed, who has obtained the free pardon of his sins. Whence it appears that this righteousness of which he speaks is simply opposed to judicial guilt. But the most satisfactory passage on this subject is that in which he declares the sum of the gospel message to be reconciliation to God, who is pleased through Christ to receive us into favor by not imputing our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18-21 Let my readers carefully weigh the whole context. For Paul, shortly after adding by way of explanation, in order to designate the mode of reconciliation, that Christ who knew no sin was made sin for us, undoubtedly understands by reconciliation nothing else than justification. Nor, indeed, could it be said, as he elsewhere does, that we are made righteous, quote, by the obedience, unquote, of Christ. Romans 5, verse 19. Were it not that we are deemed righteous in the sight of God in him and not in ourselves. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.